Welcome back to the Shoegazing Podcast with me, Jesper Ingevaldsson. It's time for the second special edition Q&A episode, where you listeners and readers of shoegazing.com get to ask questions to some big names from the quality shoe industry. This round, it's the most famous of all Japanese bespoke shoemakers that is answering your questions. Yohei Fukuda. Since about 14 years, his bespoke shoes and nowadays also top-class ready-to-wear and MTO offerings has been a holy grail for many shoe lovers around the world. Here, Fukuda gives his best advice to aspiring shoemakers, answer questions on how much time that is spent on making his shoes, reveal the secrets behind his amazing photos and much, much more. So enjoy your listen. All right, Yohei Fukuda, once again, welcome to the Shoegazing Podcast. Oh, long time no see. Yes, yeah, very Thank long you for time. having me. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, it's my first day back in Tokyo <laughs> after, yeah, over three years, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've been postponing and postponing and postponing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, Japan just opened up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, welcome yeah. back to Tokyo. Yes, thank mm. you very much. And we're doing this sort of uh, question and answer special with you. Uh, for those who, who, who are more interested in UFO Kuda, you should listen to, I think it's episode two or three, one of the first ones where we talked about, you know, brand building and image and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which you certainly are one of the better ones uh, around, among all the independent bespoke shoemakers, uh, I'd say. Uh, so that, that you should go and listen to um, if you haven't already. But today it's questions uh, from readers and followers of Shoegazing. Uh, okay. have, uh, <laughs> uh, and lots of questions came oh, really? in. So How been, many questions did you have? Uh, I think it was around 100 uh, or wow. something like that. Yes. <laughs> uh, some very short, but some really elaborate and all that. Okay. So I sort of had to... Yeah, cut them down quite a lot. Okay. Otherwise, we would sit here for a long time. <laughs> okay. And many questions were also sort of very similar. Mm. Uh, so. Okay. Uh, but I think we could start a bit where, with sort of the background for those who, who don't know them. So, because one question was from, uh, I think his name was Graham on Instagram, uh, and he asked, "Where did you learn shoemaking?" Okay. So I moved to England after I finished my high school and I went to the, uh, I learned the basic of shoemaking at the shoe college. Uh, the shoe college, is, it's called Tresham Institute. Yeah, it's in Northampton. Right? It's in uh, uh, Wellingborough. Yeah, it's okay. near Northampton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then like I worked for uh, bespoke companies for three years and I had an opportunity to learn more about bespoke shoemaking. Yeah. And when I was working for the shoe, bespoke shoe companies, um, I was doing repairs and I can learn a lot. I could learn a lot by like doing repairs. Yeah. Yeah. So I repaired like like a legend shoemaker's shoes and yeah, sort of stuff. You saw the the best ones, uh, how they were made and uh, learn from that, so to speak. <laughs> so there, 
Good shoes are quite easy to repair. Yeah. And bad shoes are more difficult to repair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I always yeah, think that we have to make shoes properly so that like repair guy can repair easily. Yeah. Mm. Cool. And um then you you moved back to Japan. Um, was it? Uh, I think it was 2007. Yeah, and I started my brand in 2008. Yeah, mm. yeah. So now it's 14 years. Yes. With uh, UF Kuda shoemaker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, cool. That's quite quite some time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think I know you for like 10 years. Yeah, maybe something <laughs> like that. No, not that. No, not I that think I, I got into shoes uh, maybe a bit 11 years ago or something like that. Okay, okay. And then I, yeah, but I remember I dreamed about your shoes. <laughs> looked at those. Back then it wasn't as many photos around. Mm, yeah. mm. So you looked at the ones that were there and you were dreaming of mm. uh, owning a pair of Procura. And oh. now I have, what is it, six or so? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate with that. Yeah. Well, right. We have a question from uh, Thomas Mains, who who want to know where you seek inspiration from. So my inspirations come from the Edwardian era. Yeah, I think that was the most elegant period period of the men's classic like clothing time. Mm -hmm. But I do like need to update the styles and shapes of the shoes for modern gentlemen. And at that time, like, there are a lot of shoemakers and uh, it was a very competitive period of the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you see the old samples, like, yeah, we are still impressed. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And because uh, that's what uh, I often describe them as sort of traditional British, but modernized. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, your shoes so the modern influences where where do you find inspiration for that then well um we don't want to copy the old style like if you play piano even though you have the same uh, score like like we play differently yeah and what i do is like i Try to follow the like uh, shoe making like textbook. Yeah, yeah. But even though you have the same textbook, like we do the like yeah different things. Mm. Um. So so how, how how has it evolved over time? Would you say your style is it the same as it was when? 2008, or how, how has it changed during these 14 years, uh, would you say? I would say our styles haven't changed. And uh, you can see the old sample yeah. like that I made 14 years ago. And um, yeah, our like a long bump Oxford is still our top seller. Yeah. And the people, our customers still order the same model. So I guess like our style haven't changed much. Yeah. We still uh, do the same. And mm. would you like to sort of evolve into any direction design wise? Mm. Or are you pleased as it is? 
Yeah, I'm quite pleased with what I'm doing because we cannot make so many shoes. At the moment, like we make 100 pairs of bespoke shoes and 200 pairs of ready to wear and made to order shoes. Yeah, yeah. for a, a year. So yeah. 300 pairs of shoes for one year. Yeah. So we cannot like make like do the new things. Mm -hmm. Mm. And do you still do all the bespoke shoes in-house here or do you use uh, outworkers occasionally? Yeah, we mainly make bespoke shoes in-house. But during the COVID time, our shoemakers wanted to work at home. Mm. So some shoemakers worked at home. All right. Yeah. 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 Your own shoemaker, so to speak. Mm. Uh, all right. Uh, an another question, which is sort of, uh, I think it's from a, maybe from an aspiring <laughs> shoemaker, Philip Carter, I think. Uh, he he want to know your advice on practicing patience for aspiring student chord winners. Okay. <clears throat> so we never fail until we give up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. And uh, I've never, like, felt that I've, I have the talent for shoemaking, but I have just enjoyed shoemaking for 20 years. And the shoemaking is still difficult for me, but it's still fun. Mm. And I don't have a talent or skill like a magician. But I think the talent is to enjoy and keep doing the same things for a long time. But sometimes, like shoe when shoemakers find it too difficult, they just give up. Mm -hmm. But I try to enjoy like anything I do. Well, um, uh, do you have any sort of those who are struggling? Maybe they feel that they try different things for a few years and they don't sort of evolve and as much as they want and maybe mm. they're still far away from having a business. How, how do you how do you go on, so to speak, and just not, okay, skip this? Well, like, okay, starting a new, like, a brand or a business, like, you have to learn shoemaking. And you also need to know, like, the branding, okay, a bit of marketing, and you have to be able to like, communicate with customers. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to learn a bit of everything to do the brand. Mm. Mm. So it's, I think, important to like learn shoemaking and a bit of everything yeah. and try just our best. Yeah. So in general, how, how long would you say that it takes for someone to uh, if they focus on it solely, so to speak, to, to become a shoemaker? Can you say a time? You mean that, like, uh, every part of shoemaking? No, <laughs> not necessarily, because uh, that's... Uh, but to become, like, a bottom maker, for example. Okay, I would say it takes, like, okay, minimum of three years. Yeah. yeah. Even you can do that, like bottom making. You have to be faster yeah. to be able to um kind of enough money to survive. Yeah, yeah. That's I know. That's one issue that many has. Even if 
if you employ someone who's doing, I mean, the work looks good, mm-hmm. but to also get the, up the tempo so that they mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. shoes quick enough for it to sort of be uh, value, make the real value for the company or mm-hmm. as a freelancer to be able to make a living of it. That's, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's another step that one might not think about as much because if yeah. you finished a really nice shoe mm-hmm. you might think that you're done but yeah mm. it's quite a long way to be able to make a living of it because you need to do that yeah, that's <laughs> over right. and over again and quicker yeah if you um, for instance independent shoemaker and if you make only one pair a month mm. you make okay 12 pairs for one year if you have 120 customers or orders like the waiting time would be like 10 years yeah. But that's a and, uh, you have to charge a lot to uh, <laughs> go around on only 12 shoes yes yeah, that's uh, right yes mm. uh, so uh, what, what is the demand for bespoke shoes in Japan nowadays uh, who, who are willing to pay would you say mm. I think the Japanese market is quite mature because like a lot of Japanese Gentlemen have ordered bespoke shoes, and uh, <clears throat> we do not have like so many new Japanese customers every month. But we still have many repeat customers like who enjoy ordering our shoes, mm. and the bespoke uh, shoes takes about eighteen months to finish, and that's a long time. And I think our bespoke customers have passion and patience. Yeah. But uh, how many are international customers and how many are Japanese customers for you? At the moment, like foreign customer cannot, uh, couldn't come to Japan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so we have more yeah, Japanese shoes. bespoke customer yeah. than before. Yeah. But I would say like, 70% of our customers are international yeah. customers. And yeah, you really have a lot of international. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But it's a bit more now uh, with the domestic customers after the COVID years? Yes. We have more domestic customers than before. And most of them are repeat customers. Mm. 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 Uh, and this is uh, from uh, a friend called Peter. His name is Peter and he lives in um, uh, in Tokyo, actually, but he's called Tokyo Fedora on uh, okay. Instagram. Uh, so, so he he want to know how the how weak yen mm-hmm. has affected your your business. Um, as like, for example, imported letters must have increased in cost a lot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Japanese yen is very weak now. Yeah. And we pay more for materials like uh, leather and uh, bottom materials. Also, the shipping cost is getting very expensive yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, okay, we take more orders than before. And uh, I think this is a good time to like shop in Japan. Yeah, yeah. you must have a lot of uh, <laughs> international ones who now can travel back. Yeah. Uh, and who, especially the US uh, mm. folks who have a very strong dollar, they, your sheep are uh, not cheap, but uh, mm. relatively cheap compared to what they should be, so to speak, for, for them at the moment. Yeah, yeah. that's right. 
like our shoes are like a 40% off now yeah, for, yeah, for some American customers. Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a shame for us in Sweden. We sort of follow the Japanese yen, so oh. we are also very... <laughs> uh, for me, it's not the same as if I would have come from America. Mm. Unfortunately, it's... Uh, and the same when I order stuff from euro or dollar, it's... Mm. Costs a lot, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, you, right. would you say that it's sort of uh, even if prices for your um, um, yeah for the letters and materials and stuff like that shipping that sort of uh, uh, can be take covered by raising prices maybe and uh, yeah we have to raise the demand. prices yeah. a little bit but not much. Mm. Yeah, to cover the cost. Yeah. So uh, another question from uh, TM is called on Instagram, I think. Uh, so, w- what features of European leather do you find superior to Japanese leather uh, that makes you select European leather for your work? Would you say? Hmm. I think there is a bigger demand for luxury products in Europe. And uh, that is why some European tanneries still make good quality leather, even though their price is very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And most of tanneries worldwide are pro- producing low-cost leather because there's a good market and it is what companies are requesting from the tanneries. Mm. Mm. To make the low-cost leather, like they need to spray and hide the defects on the leather. And a good quality leather usually have like a natural growth marks and the defects. And like we can only use 20% of leather for our shoes. And also from the European... Yeah, also, yeah. yeah, because it's very natural. Mm. Yeah. And uh, we see a lot of defects and... Yeah. stuff so I'm hoping that like, Japanese tanneries can develop like suitable leather for us in the future yeah because mm. you have some tanneries especially you work with horse leather and uh, yes. Korban mm. which is uh, has a very good reputation uh, but calf leathers but I've seen some Japanese calf leathers that I've thought looked really mm. really nice uh, but I, I know because also one of the reasons that I know that European letters are relatively sought after from the quality is that in general European animals mm-hmm. live relatively good lives mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not too much uh, um, you know antibiotics and everything so that they can grow quicker mm-hmm. and live on very small areas and stuff like that Yeah, which also uh, ends up in good letters mm-hmm. uh, and I know that like in India and stuff like that, where you have the best Indian letters, mm-hmm. it's often European hides that they yeah, imported, that's right. uh, like wet blue hides mm-hmm. that they imported and then they mm-hmm. finish them. Uh, so the hides are very important yeah. to make good leather. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, do you think that could potentially grow the Japanese uh, uh, tannery industry to become even more mm. you know, good quality letters? Yeah, I think so. Like, I have been developing the, like a laser with Japanese tannery. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, we have made like some sample like lasers, and the uh, quality is getting better. Yeah. 
So in the future, yeah, I want to use Japanese leather mm. for our shoes. Mm. Cool. Mm. Um, so Tadas is asking, uh, taking into account that the market is very competitive mm -hmm. and it's getting even more competitive, mm -hmm. uh, he says, uh, what makes your shoes uh, mm. stand out, would you say? <laughs> Yeah, like, as I said before, we haven't changed our style, yeah. For example, like, if you have a favorite Italian pizza restaurant and specializing in margherita, you go to the restaurant to have good pizza, and you don't want to be surprised to see Japanese food on the menu. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when the restaurant, like, doesn't have many customers, they could... They might think, okay, they need to offer a different kind of food, but I think that's quite wrong. Like they should stick to like what they are good at. So I think that's one of the reasons like, like we are keeping our house style and uh, like originality. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of makes like different from our, like from other brands. Yeah. Mm. How is it, because uh, in general, uh, at least in Europe and the US, uh, there's a lot of talk about sort of the casualization of society and how people wear less formal clothing uh, hmm. nowadays. And that's that's been uh, sort of uh, uh, sped up by um, uh, COVID, of course. Uh, hmm. how, how is that uh, here in Japan, would you say? Yeah, like a lot of like office workers are, are now like working at home yeah. and they don't need to wear the proper suits or tie or shirts. They, okay, tend to wear more relaxed clothes. Yeah. And in Japan, we don't wear shoes at home. So yeah, you are right. Like people are dressing more casually and uh, we take more orders of like casual shoes. Like, yeah, you do that. Yeah, yeah loafers, yeah. splito derbies, yeah. like chakka boots, but they are still classic. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But it's, you, you see that it's more, a bit less dressy Oxfords and more uh, yeah, casual style right. shoes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. cool. Then we have lots of questions on uh, around you're making of uh, and all that so I've selected a few here uh, this one is from uh, Shashan Krajkana I think mm -hmm. uh, and he want to know how much time you invest in making one pair of bespoke shoes mm. roughly yeah for the first pair of bespoke shoes like we usually spend 120 hours yeah. to 140 hours like making the first pair yeah. and for the second pair we usually spend 80 hours. That's still, still that's yes, much. Still, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think we spend more time than like other bespoke companies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's uh, really long <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and the factory made shoes, it probably takes three hours to make. All right. Mm. Yeah. So compared to the factory made shoes, yeah, yeah our 
like making time is much much longer yeah so your uh, bespoke is sort of cheaper <laughs> oh, maybe yes <laughs> but yeah you still have the material costs and all that of course, yeah that's right is more or less similar i guess for ready to wear and for the bespoke it's yeah that big difference mm -hmm. yeah and uh, we have Agnes who is asking how long does it take to do the finishing of the shoes the polishing and all that mm. well we usually spend at least one hour polishing a pair of shoes yeah so we make about like 25 pairs of shoes a month yeah and we spend more than I guess 30 hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> for one month yeah that's quite yeah but I know especially for some leathers I can imagine that you have to work a lot too because you all we should say that for those who don't know that you basically always deliver them with like proper mm -hmm. high shine mm -hmm. and finishing so to speak it's uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the good things when you order from and receive shoes from guys like you that you never have to uh, polish them uh, yourself or, uh, or build it up at least from the beginning uh, mm. you have that uh, as a base for many, many yeah, long that's time right. uh, so customers like do not need to spend a lot of time to polish shoes mm. yeah our polishing remains for a long time mm. so you should Mm, hope to get more suede orders and <laughs> cut the, <laughs> the making cost a bit. Um, and the, one question I wonder is what the reason behind that you wanted to start ready to arrange? Hmm. So there are some reasons why I started the ready to wear range. Like one of the biggest reasons is to increase the global awareness yeah. of Japanese shoes. Yeah, by foreign customers. Uh, yeah, by growing this market, like we can provide a grow like a good environment for shoemakers in Japan to like continue this tradition. Otherwise, if we don't have orders, we cannot make shoes. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, it's important to start ready to wear shoes. And another reason is to shorten the waiting time. Because five years ago, like uh, we only produced 80 pairs of bespoke shoes for one year. Mm. And the waiting time was over two years. And with ready to wear shoes, like our customers can get shoes immediately if we have the shoes in stock. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, delivery time for uh, even if it has to be made, it's is much shorter than uh, for a bespoke. Yeah, mm. that's right. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, from the same person, why want to know? I'm not sure if it's correct, but uh, maybe they've uh, uh, kept track even better on your Instagram, <laughs> but. They want to know that you don't do much cordovan shoes. Uh, mm. Why is that? Well, because like most of our customers prefer to use car for straight leather. And I think many of our customers tend to like order elegant shoes from us. Mm. And the cordovan doesn't mean casual, but the image of cordovan is like usually used for the casual shoes. Mm -hmm. 
So we don't select laser. Our customers select laser. That's but, yeah, yeah. But you offer a Cordovan. Yeah, have, we do uh, offer yeah, Cordovan. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yes. it will be a bit more than if you have more casual styles that you will see mm. an increase in Cordovan. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. Uh, that would look maybe even nicer when you <laughs> do the photographs with all the lots of Cordovan. Yeah, with your the gl- the glow. <laughs> ah, maybe yes. And I put some shoes made of cotton. Just I didn't put it's cotton. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you yeah. wouldn't realize yeah. that they are cotton shoes. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes, especially when you, the way you shine your shoes and the way you take photos of them, they mm. look really shiny. Yeah, on yeah, them. yeah, yeah. That's actually one one question that uh, many has asked about. Uh, how you take such good photos. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when I started Instagram, yeah, that was eight years ago. And uh, I used my iPhone to take a picture when I started. Yeah. And now I use uh, Sony Alpha 7 R3 yeah. or Leica M10 to take pictures. And they are very useful tool. But I have put over 2,000 pictures of shoes. <laughs> so I need to be quite good at taking shoe photos. And you're also interested in <laughs> photography. Yeah, yeah, I like the, photography. Yeah, yeah, and you have lots of gadgets. I often say that, that every time I came here, I, mm-hmm. before COVID, I often came once a year. Mm-hmm. And then every time you had, you had a counter here in the back of the showroom, mm-hmm. it's always was moved out a bit more because <laughs> you had all these flashes and the uh, uh, yeah, yeah, photographic right. gear yeah. uh, laying there. And it yeah. was growing and growing. And now <laughs> I was surprised because uh, it was moved back again. But yeah, yeah I, you have a new tools st- upstairs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the camera stuff was in you. Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I want to improve. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. But uh, what's most fun, making shoes or taking photos (laughs) of shoes? (laughs) Well, photography is quite similar to like uh, cutting patterns. Yeah. Yeah, so we have to have a good balance. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, both of them are fun. But how, because you work with um, like... um, yeah, what you call it? Uh, flash, uh, like uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, flash, uh, like different? artificial light. Yeah, artificial mm. light, right? Uh, do you work like one flash, or do you have several? And uh, well, I only have one artificial light, yeah. so I just use one light to take pictures most of the time. Yeah, of course, the natural like like light is better, mm. but sometimes like usually I take photos before I go home. Mm. And it's in the evening, so I have to use the light. Yeah, mm. but you have one light, and but you also have these um, reflection boards and stuff like that that you work with. I used to use the board mm. to take pictures before, mm. but I only have two hands. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I have to hold camera. <laughs> I have to hold the board, and it's yeah. it was getting more difficult yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave up using the board yeah. yeah I just use one that now but how much time to take one of those images that po- you post on Instagram how much time do you spend roughly normally to use usually I spend 
two minutes. Two minutes? Yeah, yeah. Setting two. it up? And yeah, setting up and taking pictures and done. Because I've done it so many times. But you don't, have, don't edit it anything or anything? Uh, if the picture is too light, okay, yeah. I do the editing. Yeah. But maybe it takes like a few minutes. Hmm. I see. That's certainly not the case when I take photos. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have to take shitloads. Because very few get... Uh, one hour to yeah, take yeah, one exactly. picture. Takes, or one hour and you get one good photos, but mm. 100 photos. Uh, wow. But 99 bad ones. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we actually, uh, with the company I work for, uh, we started using this uh, photographic equipment with flash and all that. And it is indeed easier to get because like you say when you know how mm. to do it it's mm. easier uh, uh, compared to when it's natural when you shoot yeah, the natural yeah. light mm. differs so much so then you have to do mm. things differently every time uh, yeah, at least for right. me who's not a good photographer uh, mm. it's easier to do it with uh, equipment and fi fixed settings and all that yeah. mm -hmm. Sometimes, like if you spend like too much effort and time, sometimes you get uh, mm, not okay. so motivated. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay to take good photos if you are lucky, mm. but it's also okay to take bad photos. Just important thing is just you have to continue. Yeah, <laughs> doing yeah, yeah. this as a habit yeah. or something. Yeah. So. <clears throat> People also, many people also want to know uh, when are you coming to Europe and the US again to do trunk shows and which cities? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm planning to have a trunk show in Paris oh, this nice. uh, November. Cool. And I will go back to London and Geneva in June next year right. because I just finished the trunk show in London and Geneva. Yeah, you yeah. were there this so, summer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, to uh, the US, any plans? Um, we don't have a, a plan for US trunk show yet. Yeah, but. Because you have been there, right? At the armory? Before? Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah, I have done the trunk show in New York City yeah. before. Mm. Um, so from. Piliecha, um, are there any styles of footwear that you don't like, uh, either <laughs> stylistically or to make? <laughs> That's a tough question. Yeah, yeah I'm a shoemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I like most shoes. But yeah. uh, are there some shoes that you have get an order and you feel like, oh, not this. <laughs> it's so boring or it's so ugly. Or <laughs> I enjoy shoemaking. But sometimes, like, If you order a pair of, for instance, Cordoban uh, Chelsea birds, yeah, Cordoban is stiff leather, yeah, difficult, and, yeah, yeah, difficult to have a nice shape, yeah, difficult to the blocking, yeah, and you know that you're in for a lot of uh, hair scratching and uh, mm. hard work. Yeah, that's hard, but and I don't want to waste. The important leather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's because that's why you often you know, upcharge when you do that type of things. Yes, yes. You have the risk of uh, uh, mm. tearing the leather. And, yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. But are there any shoes that you wouldn't wear yourself that you don't like to to wear? 
Most of the time I wear like classic shoes, leather shoes. I don't have any sandals yet. No, right. <laughs> um, I have some trainers. Yeah. But is it because you don't like sandals or just because you haven't sort of felt the need for them? I don't know. Huh? I Yeah, I used to have sandals when I was younger. Yeah. You don't have time to uh, go to the <laughs> beach, so you don't. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Are there any shoes that you don't like? That I don't like? Uh, this that's a difficult question. Yeah, but yeah. there's many shoes that I find hideous. Oh. Uh, but you know, especially the ones, you know, cheap dress shoes that are like very square and they have these seams along the edges ah, uh, and stuff like that I, I mean that uh, looks like shit uh, <laughs> for sure uh, that, which is like and you know, also here in Japan you see quite a lot of that uh, yeah that's correct uh, very yeah. cheap dress mm. shoe, or formal shoes what you would call it but the people wear mm. black st- shoes that they wear to the office mm. and they don't care at all uh, mm. they mm. just needed a pair of black uh, leather or shoes yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah and it looks like yeah some are really bad I'd say um, mm. but yeah of course uh, yeah I see what you mean <laughs> uh, but uh, if you look at it from the other direction and this is from the tour um, uh if you had to wear one pair of shoes for the rest of your life, which mm. would it be and why? <laughs> That's a difficult question as yeah. well. <laughs> so the shoes have to be quite versatile, yeah, for sure. comfortable and long lasting. <laughs> and if I could only have one pair of shoes, I would say probably split or derby in grain desert yeah. with uh, half rubber and rubber heel just like because it rains sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just like what I'm wearing today yeah 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 exactly what would you pick <sighs> if I yes uh, would probably be something rather similar if you would look at it in a practical way if I would only like I often say that when I get asked the question, which shoe would mm-hmm. you say first when it, there's a fire? Mm-hmm. I often mention those, you know, special Adelaide's that I have from you, mm-hmm. uh, brown ones with uh, this like peak Adelaide uh, pattern, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. I think, they're my favorite pair of all the ones I have. Um, but if I only would have those shoes, I would look really off in many uh, mm-hmm. occasions, uh, mm-hmm. and there wouldn't be. Now the kids are a bit older, but they would certainly not be good when you were in at the <laughs> playground with, with the kids. Yeah, that's right. So it's impossible to pick just one yeah, shoe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But so, so something like uh, some sort of derby with uh, tougher leather and stuff like that would mm. probably be mm. what you could wear with most things at least. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, that would last for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So this is a quite interesting one I think we finish off with this uh, it's from Satoya Baltimore uh, who want to know what you think is the next innovation in pattern and or <laughs> so last design that you think will become popular oh, I'm 
<laughs> very sorry I don't know <laughs> I don't follow the trend or I don't follow fashion yeah. I just want to stick with like the classic style yeah yeah but if you think uh, if you look at the classic models you've had a few sort of uh, uh, models that become we had a double monk strap that was really popular mm, a few mm, years ago and mm. now talking about the speak to Derby which is I think is a very mm. very popular model uh, at the moment uh, more popular than it sort of used to be yeah so I understand yeah what you but mean but those are obviously not new new styles but Mm. I think like a lot of people have been dresses, dressing casually mm. and uh, kind of like uh, casual shoes, quite chunky looking shoes have been quite popular for many, yeah, many years. Yeah, yeah. So maybe next trend would be kind of bit sleeker looking shoes. Yeah, that, that comes back yeah, again. That yeah. comes back yeah, again. That's, you often have these cycles. Mm, so. That's right. Uh, but it's interesting also to think about, you know, innovations in, within this field. You have a few things. Like, I thought about it the other day that I've seen more and more, you know, spiral hole cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, from what I know, it's probably from way before... Yeah, anyway, that, but I know John Law Paris, they did one mm. spiral hole cut mm. for the St. Crispin's mm. uh, model that they do every year uh, yes. for the 25th of October. Um, so, but that I've seen being made in different versions from also from ready to wear brands and stuff like that. Mm. Mm. Uh, so you have, and the seamless hole cut was also a thing that that's also from way back, of course, but mm. it's something that you've seen becoming more and more popular, and also ready to wear brands started offering it. Oh, Stuff really? Like Seamless hole cut? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. A few wear brands. Do you have any, like, uh, uh, are there anything that you sort of invent, uh, innovated or so? Do you have anything that you feel that you came up with in mm. shoemaking? Like, I started doing the swan neck perforation when I started yeah, my Yeah, yeah. And I guess like some companies, yeah, have kind of to take taken the kind of signature, yeah, and that they use it for their shoes. Yeah, yeah, that's that you see nowadays mm. from uh, several brands and mm. maybe bespoke makers as well. That uh, and there were like long bump Oxford. It's like getting more popular, mm. I guess. Mm. So some companies started to make, but the the perforated swan neck thing. Mm-hmm. Did you find inspiration from that from anywhere, or did you sort of come up with it yourself? You remember how it started? I don't actually remember, but I always liked the swan neck, mm-hmm. and I just thought, okay, I don't want to be very showy, but I want to be a little bit different. Mm. So I thought, oh, punched swan neck, maybe a good signature of yeah, our yeah. shoes. Yeah. Cool. All right. Joy Fukuda, thank you very much for taking the time and answer all these questions. Uh, and thank, thank you everyone so who asked questions. Uh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to this episode. Head to shoegazing.com for much more on quality shoes. And to those of you who want to support shoegazing and make it possible for me to, for example, continue to travel and meet all these great shoemakers, there is a Patreon page where you can contribute with anything from $3 a month. Both big and small contributions are much appreciated. See shoegazing.com for more info on this. The Shoegazing Podcast will be back with a new episode in a short while. So hear you again soon. 